Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This week's podcast episode is not only the 59th episode of the podcast, but it is the second part in a two-part series. So if you did not listen to last week's podcast, Trout Quixote Part 1, then you definitely want to go check that out on your favorite podcast player which is probably whatever you're using to listen to this episode. So I'm going to pick up where I left off. So if you don't want a major spoiler, you need to pause this and go back. I'm serious. I'm about to spoil the entire story. All right, here you go. Trout Cahote, part two. It wasn't a trout. It was, in fact, Elipomus cyanellus, the green sunfish. Coming across the eastern half of the United States, it's a fine panfish in its own right. I caught these little guys, one after another. They were more than eager to eat dry flies and streamers. They even put a little bit of bend in my three weight. The ability of sunfish to live in even the smallest swampy trickles is pretty remarkable. But sunfish are most definitely not trout. I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't disappointed. After all of that anticipation, all of that buildup, to catch something other than a brook trout was a letdown. A five-pound bass wouldn't have given me a reason to cry, but it still wouldn't have been that little trout that my imagination had conjured up. Before the sunfish ravaged my blooming olive, I was planning out my cast. The cold water was incredibly refreshing about my ankles and calves in the humid late-morning heat. From where I crouched, there were about five yards of riffle before a deep hole with a log plunging into its depths. Beyond that, the pool opened up to the deep, waving grasses I had seen from the path, where I saw the fish. The water entered the pool through an old stone culvert. Culverts are intriguing. Be they stone or corrugated steel, they are inherently not wild and markedly human. Much has been made in headwater feeder creeks about certain culvert types and their placement as being very detrimental for fish movement, but in lower gradient waters, such as spring creeks, they can be prime fish-holding spots, not necessarily picturesque, but productive. I've caught a few nice fish out of culverts, including a huge brown trout on the historic limestone stream in Pennsylvania, so the one that was before me piqued my interest. But first things first, I casted beautifully, not to brag, but my roll cast slid under a branch and dropped in the dead center of the deep hole. I waited, fully anticipating a splash of one sort or another. There was nothing. 
and the tentative, weak nibbles of some minnow-like critter trying its hardest to pull my fly down by a single hackle fiber. I watched helplessly as it summoned a minnow horde to eventually sink the pattern. Pulling the line slowly back towards me, I recast a bit further out. That's when it hit. The rise was a mild splash, the kind that is just fishy and inconspicuous in form. There was hope for a brief moment. This wasn't a minnow. This might be the larger streamlined trout-like fish I'd seen the week before, but before I could soar further along a flight of fancy, I saw the sunfish gleaming in the, well, sun as I stripped the line in. Almost at once, I realized that the water was cool but not cold. The vegetation was green but not lush. The stream was good but not right. I tossed the little sunfish back in and proceeded to catch a few more of his friends. I ventured deep into the culvert, got thoroughly covered in spiderwebs, and then realized it was too small in diameter to turn around my, with my fly rod. I got wet up to my waist. I crossed the little pool off my list. Walking back to the car, a return trip marked by a much more cavalier attitude about who might see me and deduce my angling quarry. I thought of the next spot on my list. A spot that has trout. I've seen them. But it's a spot that is not easily accessible through permissible means. If you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. If you want to catch trout in suburbia, you might have to be creative. But life gets in the way of even the most obsessed over pursuits. That's the way it ought to be. Diversions should be just that, a deviation from the major thoroughfare of work, school, etc. Fly fishing, as important as it is to me, is still just a diversion. A handful of trips to local ponds and creeks every month, punctuated by a more sizable outing or two, is sufficient for the stage of life that I'm in. If fly fishing in general requires time to be carved out of my busy schedule, the little local trout quest, in specific, gets even less time. Almost a year since I plotted, schemed, and attempted to confirm the existence of a remnant trout population amid suburbia, I decided to take it to the next level. I knew a stream less than 10 miles away that held a trout population. Exclusively rainbows filled this little spring creek. Not much is known about the fish, other than they naturally produce and have been doing so for some time. And the vast majority of the length of the stream is on private property, including all the reasonable access points. The only exception, the only way as I saw it, was to fish up from where the creek entered a larger river. The river is fully navigable, public, and accessible. The access points, however, are not necessarily near the junction point I was looking for. Thus began a Lord of the Rings-style adventure. I could see my destination. I could even plot out a very simple path. Yet that path would lead to certain doom at the hands of the local authorities. I would have to take a more circuitous, adventurous route. As a bit of an aside, I know that many an angling tale spins out of some, quote, creative access, unquote. Without wading into the public-private land debate too deeply, my thoughts are this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If I want to fight the system in regard to something like strolling right up to a spring creek in a private community, I'm not going to fire the first shots by protesting my forceful removal. There are other channels to pursue, ones that I'm not willing to take the time to deal with at this point in my life. Plus, a little more Dorian expedition every now and again doesn't hurt. The Tolkien parallels are not a stretch. I contended with swamps, spiders, cliffs, and some despair. And I didn't have a lick of magic to help me either, unless you count Google Maps. Fantastic analogies aside, I did have a couple of miles to cover. Trails made up the first half of the journey, but a muddy riverbank on the back end slowed me down significantly. I slipped a lot. 
but Dirty's shoes significantly outweighed poison ivy and Lyme disease. Additionally, the river I was following was teeming with life. I saw eagles. That's more Lord of the Rings stuff. Deer and vibrant summer flora. Fish were also active. Bass were crashing baitfish. Bluegill were making their trademark crack rises. And every now and again, a big carp would do that crazy carp jump and splash thing. Trout was my destination, but these warm water species had to be part of the destination. It took a lot of self-control to not tie on a popper as I walked the slow, rock-strewn river. I finally got to the mouth of the creek. Turning off the river's bank, I was immediately on rockier ground in thicker canopy. Most notable, though, was the water's temperature. It was cold. I knew it would be, but standing knee-deep in cold water on a 90-degree day feels like trout fishing in Virginia. Everything felt right and looked right. I knew there were trout in the stream. Now I was experiencing the stream I knew held trout. All I had to do was find one, catch it, and complete my quest. Well, on corn kiss, how's that? Micus isn't native to the East Coast, but there are plenty of clean, cold spring creeks that sustain wild reproducing populations of the fish. The creek I was fishing in northern Virginia is one such creek. But I didn't catch any fish in that creek, which means that I didn't catch any trout anywhere near my hometown in Virginia. And I moved back to New England, which means that I won't be catching any trout anywhere near my hometown in Virginia anytime soon. But before I get too introspective, let me explain what happened after I stumbled and fell and sweated and grimaced my way into the mouth of this creek. The stream was beautiful. The banks were lush, the bottom was gravelly, and the water was moving along in a good riffle-run pool cadence. There were Japanese beetles and flying ants everywhere, so I was plopping a generic little foam terrestrial in every possible fish-holding spot. I worked methodically, making sure all the likely and maybe likely feeding lanes were covered. I saw sculpins and dace, turtles and frogs but no trout. Each pool I fished looked better than the previous one, but nothing took notice of my fly aside from the aforementioned bait fish, their telltale dimpling rises barely making the fly move on the surface of the water. From beginning at a place of complete solitude at the creek mouth, I began to sense my isolation waning. Vehicle noise was faint but present. The tree line grew thinner and there was mowed lawns on either side. The tops of large houses were visible just over little hills. Then I heard the sound of people, and I knew I was getting too close for my conscience. Nothing was posted, but I also was aware that I was in a gray area when it came to access. I didn't want to fight that battle from an asking for forgiveness is easier than asking for permission position. Plus, these were rainbows. It'd be fun, but it wasn't brook trout. They were wild, but they weren't native. It would be fun, but not what I want with this whole trout cahote thing. There's a small stream with the reproducing population of brook trout in northern Virginia. It's a little further from my hometown. I know precisely where it is, where the fish are, and the story of the watershed. But it is fragile, small, and not something I want to mess with just so I could check off a box on my angling wish list. Again, just having the knowledge that there are trout within close proximity is captivating. And once more, I'm back in New England where I did find a small spring within a 15-mile radius which has a flow that holds native populations of brook trout. What else could I ask for? They're fish. This is my home. That should be enough. If it isn't, it's a me issue, not the burden of some against-the-odds project to locate trout that have hung on by an ecological thread while the vast majority of their species has been extirpated. So here's me being introspective. 
This trout quest was fun. It was a challenge. It got me fishing, thinking, and exploring. It didn't end like I thought I wanted it to, but it did end, and it ended like I really wanted it to. Me and some brook trout living in close proximity to one another. So there you have it. Trout Quixote, a six-part series from castingacross.com. There's actually a seventh part that uh, is on the website, so if you're interested, I will throw a link to that in the show notes at the bottom of the episode you just listened to on the website. Have you ever had some sort of crazy trout quest? And it kind of is crazy. Even thinking about it, I I like it, and it was great, and I still kind of have this desire to find how close trout live to where I live. But at the same time, it's not like I want to go catch a bunch of fish. I want to catch a big fish. It's just like I want to catch a fish as close to my house as I possibly can. So it's a little bit crazy. Have you ever had any sort of goals or quests or desires like that? Let me know on the comment section of this post on castingacross.com. This week on the website, two articles as per usual. The first one was called Consider the Fall Fish. I have a particular penchant. And when I'm on the water, where regardless of where I am, I catch fall fish. And I know you're saying, wow, you are lucky. I can't believe that you are somebody who could be trying to catch trout, trying to catch bass, trying to catch any kind of fish that swims in the water, and you catch fall fish. And yet here I am catching fall fish. So this week on Monday, I wrote, consider the fall fish, talking a little bit about my time all over the country, well, really all over the East Coast, and decades of experience catching fall fish. Wednesday is an article that was very timely. It's called Water, Woods, and Christmas Time. It was very fun. I'm down in Virginia actually recording this on Christmas evening. And uh, yesterday, Christmas Eve, I went out with my oldest son and my two oldest, a niece and a nephew, and we spent about an hour and a half, two hours, on a little trout stream. We were fishing right above an impoundment, so we didn't catch anything, and I want to attribute it to the fact that the water had really just dropped both in volume and in temperature over the last week. So I think any fish that was probably in that first quarter mile to half mile above the impoundment ran down into that lake to get some thermal refuge, if that makes sense that or we were just splashing and having a lot of fun walking in the water we did see a snake it uh we thought it was a rattlesnake at first it wasn't but that led to a lot of great stories and ultimately all of that contributed to a really good transition period and i wrote about that in the article i've actually expended more words in the last few minutes talking about the article than i actually used in the article but really what it comes down to is this i'm not a huge fan of the holiday season I love Christmas. I'm just not a big fan of Christmas time. And you might think that's bizarre coming from a pastor, coming from somebody with four kids, but it's just a very busy time of year. It's a very expensive time of year. It's a very long and living in New England, a very cold time of the year. So it's just not my favorite holiday. I like Thanksgiving. I like Fourth of July. I like Labor Day and Memorial Day, for goodness sakes. But Christmas just isn't my cup of tea. But once I get in the groove, and usually that means like Christmas Eve, I start to feel better about things because everything's done. And anything that's not done, you just say, you know what? It's just not meant to be. We'll take care of it later. We'll do it some other time. And for me, yesterday, going trout fishing in this little Shenandoah stream was fantastic. 
didn't catch anything, didn't even see any fish. Of course, if you were to ask the kids, they would say they saw so many fish, but I didn't see any fish. Beautiful stream, very low gradient where we were, uh, right as, as it always happens to be the case when you're fishing a mountain stream or any stream for that matter it seems like what was just beyond the bend was where the river started getting good but almost every one of the pools that we fished the drop off from the pool above to the pool that we were fishing was only maybe about a foot to two feet high and we were just getting into that steeper gradient kind of canyon portion of the river when we had to turn back to get back to the ham and the ham matters the ham was important the ham scalloped potatoes, green beans. That was a very simple but fantastic meal. But I had that in the back of my head, knowing that my uh, family, uh, my wife, my other kids, everybody was waiting for us. So we get to this part of the river where it really gets steep. The banks really get rocky and rigid. The pools start to cascade a whole bunch. and made a couple of casts to no success. And uh, we headed back through the woods to the car for the drive back spectacular time on the water even though there was no fish great drive through the rolling virginia hillside it was just a lot of fun and it effectively created that kind of segue yesterday morning christmas eve morning i went shopping i was wrapping presents i was getting the last bits of things put together and making sure that the kids outfits were ready and my clothes were ready for church that night hit the river and all we did was enjoy being outside enjoy being together come back go to church eat dinner and it was like a clean break from the craziness of the Christmas season and we were able to enjoy Christmas just as it was and so had a great Christmas Eve had an awesome Christmas and uh, definitely can't argue with that so actually what I just said to you was way much more than what I wrote on Waters Woods and Christmas time but what you will find if you go to that article on castingacross.com is actually the last four years of Christmas articles and some of them are meant to be funny some of them are meant to be really serious but it's just cool for me even as the one who writes them you know to look back and think what was I thinking about last year what was I thinking about the year before what was I thinking about the year before and so you can definitely check that out this week's recommendation on the podcast is the Douglas Upstream now I know I've mentioned the Douglas Upstream fly rod series on casting across before both in the podcast and certainly on the website but I love this fly rod it is a slow to medium action lightweight fly rod I have one in a two weight an eight foot two weight and they come in those trout weights but they are the softest smoothest graphite fly rods I have ever casted and I'm not saying that because of any other reason than it is the absolute truth this rod is smoother than soft fiberglass it feels and this might sound like heresy to a lot of people but it feels like bamboo that's the closest thing I can I can uh, relate it to but it, it definitely is still graphite so this isn't a bamboo replacement this isn't gonna win over a bamboo purist but the way it feels is just exceptional I'm a huge fan of it it is my preferred small water trout rod I was using it yesterday in the Shenandoah. I use it on the spring creeks up in New England. I use it up in the mountains in New England. It is very responsive though. It is not at all slow such that you can't turn a fly over. 
you really do have to be a little bit more deliberate in your cast, but that's good. Sometimes that makes you think about where your fly is going to go. And it's not one of those rods where you're going to be thinking four, six, eight hours into your day, okay, I have to change my casting stroke up to be able to get my fly where I want it to go. You easily and quickly adapt to it. It's not so foreign and not so different that you're not going to know what you're doing when you're casting the upstream. So I would suggest going and casting one. It's a fun rod to cast. Even if that's not your thing, like if you don't need another small stream fly rod or you don't need a fly rod in a you know one to six weight or something like that, one to five weight, definitely still go and cast the Douglas Upstream. There's another line, the Upstream Plus, and to be totally honest, I've never cast the Upstream Plus. I love to get my hands on that four weight that they have and I plan on doing that this winter but that's exactly what you should do if you go to one of the fly fishing shows is grab the Douglas Upstream and if you're a small stream or a trout guy this is a rod that I think you should cast just to say you casted it because it is so incredibly different than so much of what's being put out there uh, it's it's a really good rod a really um, pretty looking rod too very light green very soft in the hand very light in the hand incredibly lightweight and I know that Douglas is a big company in some ways and a small company in other ways, but uh, I really like the Douglas Upstream. I like the other rods I've casted. I like their reels, uh, super cool, solid click Paul reels, the Argus series. But uh, Douglas Upstream, if you are a small stream trout person and you don't want to spend over $500, but you want a spectacular premium fly rod, then Seriously, go check it out. If you've got money burning a hole in your pocket from Christmas time, go check out the Douglas Upstream. You will not be disappointed. If you have any questions about my experience with it, because I've fished with this probably more than any other small stream trout rod over the last five years or so, feel free to shoot me an email, Matthew at castingacross.com. Let me know on social media. I'd be happy to give my insights on the fly rod because I'm, I'm a fan. It's my favorite. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.